This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. The Pantheon, 125 AD. The Tower of Hercules, 117 AD. Nanchon Temple, 782 AD. Hagia Sophia, 537 AD. All of these structures were built centuries ago, but still stand in use today. Do modern era buildings get created in such a way that allows for them to last this long? Of course not. But why is that? What can we do to improve the longevity of our buildings? Can we try to make our buildings last longer utilizing methods of today's construction environment? How long should we be trying to make our buildings last? Welcome to episode 129, Built to Last. We are coming to you live from the Construction Specialties booth at AIA 2023 in San Francisco. This episode can help you earn your required annual AIA HSW credits. We partner with Construction Specialties and Building Design and Construction to get this episode accredited, which means just by listening today, you can earn one AIA HSW credit. Just go to our website where you can find a link that will take you to the BDNC University where you can take a short quiz provide your AIA information, and boom, credit. Nice. Hi, everyone. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today, Andrew and I are joined by Gabriel Blasi from Construction Specialties to have a chat about Built to Last, today's topic. Mr. Blasi is a graduate of the Pennsylvania College of Technology with degrees in electronics technology and technology management and is currently the Director of Engineered Product Solutions at Construction Specialties. Gabe and his team have designed, manufactured, and supplied some of the world's most complex seismic expansion joint systems, and in recent years, they have led the advancement and integration of modular technologies into the commercial sector. Gabe has over 20 years of experience working with architects, engineers, and building owners across the globe to develop solutions to complex construction problems. He also manages and leads the test laboratory in Pennsylvania, where Construction Specialties, Inc. has tested the final expansion joint system designs for over 20 base isolated structures across the United States. He currently resides in Sullivan County, Pennsylvania with his wife and six children. Hi, Gabe. What's up? Hey, gentlemen. Good to have you. Yeah, welcome to the show. I'm excited. We're on the second floor of the Construction Specialties booth here at the AIA Expo. We have a bird's eye view to everybody. Hey, everybody. (laughs) You, over there. So let's get into this. So the first section that we're going to talk about today is the average lifespan of a building. What we want to accomplish is why buildings should be built to last and the moving parts that go into considerations of why buildings should be built to last. So I feel like if we're going to have a conversation about building buildings that last, the first question we need to ask is, why do I want my buildings to last? And what does that even mean? So let me do this, depending on your answer, or at least your individual answer, Gabe, or Andrew. Is there a consideration that you might not want your buildings to last? So are we talking about buildings that last hundreds of years or 60 years? How many years are we talking about? And if you're in the business of building buildings or designing buildings, wouldn't that time span be a consideration? Some responsibility falls on us for how we solve the problems and how we build our buildings to be flexible and adapt to changes in technology as we move forward. But I would ask that question right out of the gate. 
how long do we want our buildings to last? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the unfortunate thing when you ask that to a group of people in the construction industry, the first thing that comes to mind is, wait, I'm going to be out of a job here if you have buildings that last and are, are good for 200 years. So I think it's about the aspect of what the goals are when the building is actually designed. That comes from the group of owners, architects, engineers that are either designing and building a new structure or renovating an existing structure. And we also have the people that pay for the buildings a lot of times, which isn't just the owners. Sometimes it's developers. and Sometimes they have different goals when we talk about what are the goals that we're trying to solve. Each one of those groups might have different criteria for how they would go about answering that question. Andrew, how long do you think? That concept of I'm going to be out of a job doesn't quite work. I might be doing less work or I might be doing different work, but I think it's still going to take energy and manpower to keep that thing alive for 200 years. Even if we said today we're going to build something, it's going to last 200 years because it doesn't work like the Pantheon where it's all stone and there's some paint on it. I mean, that's it. There's not much that we have to deal with, but in today's buildings, we're dealing with finishes and envelopes and systems that get outdated and all these sorts of things that still have to be updated, even if the building itself... For sure. The bulk of it can last. So I think there is still an argument to be made for we can do a 200-year building, but it's not going to put me out of work as a designer, as a contractor. It just is going to change the things that I'm working on maybe and doing more retrofit and that kind of stuff as opposed to all new construction. Again, it's a mentality shift, I think. Yeah, and I think it's a unique aspect of the parts, talking about a 200-year-old building, the actual parts that are intended to last that long versus the parts that we can change over time. Like you said, I think technology is going to change. Yeah, for sure. How often does that flip fast? So, yeah. Well, I'd also say it's not going to impact any of us because none of us are going to be here in 200 years. (laughs) True. Right. And at some point, all these 200 year buildings are going to be rolling offline just like we have now. Sure. But the idea is that it's kind of a mental position that you say, I don't want to build disposable buildings or I'm going to try to find ways to integrate a certain amount of flexibility into my design sequence, my construction sequence, my ownership sequence, like maintenance sequence, yeah, all that kind of stuff. All of that so that I can not only go into a situation that allows me the flexibility to evolve as my HVAC systems evolve, as electrical distribution systems evolve, as the wall assemblies change, there's going to be new technology. Like, can you imagine all the data centers that were out there? Yeah. Or like server rooms and buildings and all of a sudden- right. We don't need that space anymore because we're putting things in the cloud. So I don't have a room full of real-to-real data banks keeping all my drawings file yeah. safe. As I was thinking about that, just the same, right when technology started to kick off, we were trying to run Cat5 cable everywhere to tie these computers together and do all that stuff. And now it's wireless. So we're not running 80 cables. We're running like three. And we're covering the same amount of space. And so I think, again, over time, those things will change and modify. And the building has to be able to adapt to it without having to tear it all apart. I think that's kind of the idea behind it. I think the team members on the, like I said, the owners, design teams, engineers, architects, their roles have changed over time and they're going to continue to change. So the way in which a building is designed, detailed, drawn, brought to life is also evolving based on technology. So I think my view of that aspect is that that time spent by those individuals and members, the construction teams are going to change in what their roles are over time too. So I think it's, it's an opportunity cost really. If we can build buildings that last longer, it's not really that someone's actually going to be out of work. It's going to be that they're going to be doing something different with their time to advance our industry. Well, let's do this. Let's talk about the buildings that we are tearing down. Are we tearing them down because they're underserving our communities or they didn't have flexibility to make technological modifications? 
all the flexibility that we suggested just a minute ago comes at a cost. And at least I know on this end of the table, Andrew and I have been through projects where the budget is the primary driver on almost all the decisions that get made. We can talk about aesthetics and performance. And at a certain point, I can't check every single box. And I know that later on the show, we're going to talk a little bit about priorities and what's the priority and how do you set the priorities and how those priorities might change based on where you live, where you're building your buildings, what your role is in the whole concept to execution sequence. Because yeah. mm-hmm. yeah. I would imagine as an architect, I might have a different set of goals. I would almost expect that I have a different set of goals than say the owner who's going to maintain this building and hold it as opposed to a developer who's going to build it and then with the purpose of selling it to somebody else who will then take it and run it, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think it's both. I think that it doesn't fit the need versus maybe the safety aspect of the building. I think that analysis has to be complete to where you identify the work required to get that building back to where it needs to be from a retrofit if it outweighs just tearing it down and putting a new one up. And I believe that the other outlying elements of that is reduction of waste, which we're going to get into a little bit later in regards to wasted time, wasted energy, wasted materials. So I don't know that there's a perfect answer for that. No. Yeah, I don't think there is. I think we get back to the idea of financial considerations make a role in that, a big one sometimes. I know in the public school work and stuff that I did, it was all about that economy because their budgets are pretty tight to start with. And we'd evaluate an existing building and we started looking at, okay, if we have to run all new electrical system, all new mechanical systems, all of these things, we've got to now make everything ADA accessible. All those things are involved in really modifying the building. That cost in a retrofit becomes way more. Right. If the building wasn't designed to take it. And a lot of those school buildings, some of the ones we're looking at, they were designed without air conditioning in the first place. That economic factor plays a big role, I think, when you start to look at it from trying to retrofit something. I think that's what we're talking about a little bit. Is now we would want to plan for those things to be able to happen. Whereas in previous history, they weren't because we weren't thinking about that. And even now we're talking about technology. We have no idea what's coming. Who knows? Nobody would been thinking about this AI stuff that we're all dealing with now, you know, even five years ago. Right. It's a completely different ballgame. So. Well, the buildings that we listed at the opening of the show, those buildings were built by some glorious overlord yeah. saying, I want this to stand as a testament to my magnificent reign. And, you know, so they, they didn't get built in a couple of years. No. And they weren't thinking about ductwork. Yeah. No. They're generational. Yeah. Okay, so let's, for the sake of our conversation, let's take money out of it because it's such a driver yeah. and it kind of makes this conversation a lot less interesting. So let's just pretend that we're three buildings talking to each other <laughs> so that when we say, what do I want? I'm talking from the building perspective because as a building, I don't want to get torn down. Yeah, right. Okay, so I have some notes here that talk about industry standards. So what we have is that the current life expectancy of a commercial building right now is around 30 to 50 years. I didn't know that until we started looking into do this show, like how long are buildings intended to last? Yeah. yeah. Are either of you surprised by that number? Would you have thought it was less or would you thought it was more? I think it's low from an expectation perspective. I was not surprised. It was about where I thought it would be. I thought maybe even on the 50 was a little bit high. I know some commercial buildings, it depends what type of building it is. Right? Oh, well, you think about it, you go, that's buildings built after, as of this recording, like 1977 to like now. Yeah. Somewhere in that range kind of puts us 1975. There are a lot of buildings that are, obviously, they're still around. Yeah, my house. Yeah, my house. My house, yeah, turns 50 here pretty yeah. soon. The office building I office in is almost that old. Yeah. And you know what? There are times when it feels that old. Yeah. Like the performance of the building. And 
my desk was actually in a corner and I had glass on two sides, kind of corner glass office. Sounds like it's great. It was the worst. I was hot when it was hot outside and I was cold when it was cold outside. Yeah. Air circulation was terrible. Everyone's like, wow, you got a nice corner seat. And I go, yeah, because they hate me. <laughs> they put me here because it's a terrible seat from a environmental control standpoint. standpoint. So we have other notes here that talk about if you work in the industry, you know that the projected lifespan, 30 to 50 years, might actually not be true. Much of the construction today utilizes materials that are not meant to last 15 years. So there's a lot of repositioning and refurbing that's, that goes into this. I will tell you, there was a time when I did a lot of hospitality work. As a market sector, it was great because if we were working on a hotel project and we got hired to renovate the lobby space and floors two, three, and four, and then when we finished four, we'd go five, six, seven. By the time we finished seven, we'd go eight, nine, ten. Yeah. By the time we finished ten, it's time to start over again at the lobby. And it was this never-ending cycle, cycle. of yeah. updating materials and finishes. And we kind of joke a lot about the aesthetics of the projects that we work on and how, I don't want to use the word timeless because our classic, but we all remember Harvest Gold refrigerators. Avocado green. Yeah, we all right. remember that. And so part of when we go about solving problems, when you talk about a finishes standpoint, part of it's aesthetics, but then part of it's just, it's not designed to, it'll wear out before that moment comes. A lot of the products that we choose, they're not going to last 30 to 50 years. For sure. Yeah. So they, they know how we're going to replace it. And part of that might be because they know the aesthetics are going to change. Yeah. So they don't want to pay for a product that's going to last so long because they know they're going to pull it out because tastes are going to change. I think that's where the advancement in the industry comes with looking at compartmentalizing the different building components, structure versus the facade versus the inner workings of the cooling, heating, air conditioning. Like I said, the duct work. Yeah. You can certainly have duct systems or window system, window wall systems that outlast the component level pieces of the mechanicals, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the industry is advancing in regards to how they're viewing the location of those systems, right? how they can be replaced in, the, in due time without disrupting a massive part of the structure and the renovation. So I think those thoughts are starting to be documented and, and analyzed in a, in a better fashion. Well, it's what we would call the bones of the building. Yeah. The stuff that once I build my building, I'm not generally speaking, going to change the structure. Yeah. I'm probably not going to change out my curtain wall system. Right. I'd even say the main air conditioning system that's in the building we just moved into, I know it's about 45 years old. We're still using it. We didn't tear it out. I mean, it's what services the whole building. Yeah. What we did is we kind of pulled everything back to white box status, and then we reconfigured interior layout and finishes. Yeah. And that's the part that we kind of go, all right, well, that's designed to not last as long because they know that the average lease is probably 10 years or less. And they know there's going to be a turnover and someone's going to want their space, their marketing, their branding to define what that space looks like. And we're left with what the building's built out of, what the envelope is, what the roof is, what the air conditioning is, all that kind of yeah. stuff. I also think that technology is advanced enough in some of these assemblies of the components that now they, while they are integrated, they're not integrated. If that makes sense, like so we can pull some things off and not damage the other thing. Right. I think that's kind of where it's heading in a way of like, if you think about facades now where we can have these layers that are all connected to make the envelope, but they're not statically connected. They're not, I can't have this without that kind of thing. And so I can pull something yeah. out and replace it if I need to and not really impact the envelope, but I might be able to change the assembly in some way. I think that componentization or whatever, you know, what a terrible word that is. Being able to 
really make all these different components and have them work together seems to be where it's pushing in a way. Yeah, that's I, technology part in the manufacturing. I think it has to do with the stages of construction as well in regards to actually taking a look and analyzing what has to be taken apart to to mm-hmm. deal with those aspects where you can put them in the bucket of my roof's going to last X years. I know that because of data points. Sure. I think that as we look at those systems that we know are going to wear out because they're mechanical in some form or fashion, or they're going to be worn out by exposure to sun, exposure or whatever, yeah, sure. that we don't build the building in a manner where now we've got to destroy half of it to get to where we need to get to, mm-hmm. to make the change. Sure. So it's making it easier. Well, it's kind of interesting. You just said some, I hadn't thought about it when I was making notes here, but if we're doing 30, 50, 60, 70, 80 year buildings, but my roof has a 20 year warranty, mm-hmm. the expectation is, well, I'm going to pull it off and replace it at some point. That's built into the process. Sure. So let's pivot out of this, why would you do it section and talk about the steps that architects and designers and owners and developers, talk about the steps that we can take to yeah. increase building longevity. And so let's start with step one, and that is what are the considerations and factors that affect that longevity? I think that basically bucket into five main areas, which can then spawn out from there. The first is, is the climate and the geography, really, that the building exists in. Where is it? Where it's at. Yeah, the location of it. Yeah, what the climate is there. So if you look at Phoenix Sun versus North Carolina versus Maine, there's different considerations. So if you look at the climate, the temperature, geography on how, how materials actually react to that. Sure. The second is wind. So if you take a building in New York City, if you guys have ever been at the top of the Empire State Building, that thing's moving. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a different consideration in regards to how you deal with a structure like that. If you're in the Bay Area, you're not going to see a, a monster skyscraper based on the seismic requirements, which is another piece of this. We look at ground settlement and soil conditions, depending on where you're at in the country. Sure. So that, that takes into consideration settlement. And then earthquake is, is the seismic regions. So that's when you look at the skyline and see that there's a total difference from the East Coast to the West Coast. And then lastly is just element control, water infiltration, control of moisture in the building. When you wrap all that up, you guys can probably say, well, well that's, that's amazing. There's nothing new there. And that's correct. There is nothing new in that analysis, but our viewpoint on how we actually deal with that is dramatically changing over time. For example, on just letting a building breathe, that's one of our major focuses Yeah, with letting air in and out. You guys probably know if you've ever seen an old house in the neighborhood, when it's not lived in, it deteriorates really fast. Really fast. I was like, well, my house from the 70s is kind of a screen door. I mean, it's, there's lots of infiltration. And it is <laughs> not a tight envelope, right? Because it, when it was built, that's not what they did. I would fail a pressure door test by a thousand percent it would never happen well i mean just in the since i got out of school and started doing say during the 15 20 years that i was doing single family residential how we did our wall assemblies like how we put them together the introduction of drainage planes and i mean like how do we make sure that water gets out from behind my siding and my cladding right. the products that are being developed to help this is a really low-hanging fruit example so when i first started at the bottom of a brick cavity wall they put a piece of rope in and then and they would mortar it in place it. and then they would pull that out at the end and that's how you have your drainage hole your weep hole that right? was yeah. Weep yeah. Hole. yeah and of course we all if anyone who does that work they go well that's a perfect home for any number of bugs to go in there and set up their shop it's a super easy way to do that 
So now there's products that are actually plastic and they're really tiny, small cell. And you put them in, you can buy them the same color as your mortar mix. And so it just replaces the mortar between two bricks. And it's too small for bugs to really move into. Yeah. Or the wheat baffles you put in place. I mean, so yeah. much product has changed on how I would detail a wall assembly now than just 10 years ago. I think another big factor too, I mean, you mentioned the test lab early on in the introduction. And yeah. If you look at one of the major things that is happening from a technology advancement perspective is testing. Even mm -hmm. if it's not required by code to test. If you talk about seismic control, wind sway, water infiltration, age degradation based on sunlight, there's a lot of advanced tests that didn't exist 15 years ago. Yeah, water infiltration, sure. full test of a curtain wall, expansion joint system that's going to sit on a base isolated structure for 99% of its life and do nothing really that Nothing. Other than move in a very subtle way until it needs to be ready for an earthquake. The only way to really understand and know that it's going to be ready for an earthquake is to put it through that in some form or fashion and test it out. Yeah. Are you talking about a shake test? Yeah. I mean, it's a great example. There's small factors. So in 2012, UCSD produced a five-story shake table test that was done in their lab. And it was designed around the... 1971 earthquake that was pretty detrimental to the California area. Hmm. So this was a safe hospital realization to try to look at what was going to happen. And at that time in 2012, they shook a five-story building and they analyzed it and said, what happened? And what they realized is that the stairs detached from the landings, the elevator doors got stuck shut. And there was damage to the interior finishes, there was damage to the structure and its ability to really, at the end of the day, walk in there and say, is this actually safe to continue on? Like, Safe for somebody to occupy. Can we renovate this now or do we need to tear it down from a factor of safety? Hey, but I want to add on to that. So when we were talking about this while we were prepping for the show, make sure that we had all our learning objectives included in here, the stairs detaching. So let's say that the building survives well enough to not not collapse. Yeah, not collapse. You're still saying, I need to get people out of this building while this is going on, and stairs are detaching. And we all know in the event of this, in the event of that, don't take the elevator, take stairs. But it finds out you can't take the stairs because they've detached from the floors. Right. Now people can't get out of the building. Yeah, and, and what's even more important than getting people out of the building, it's getting the people in the building that's going to help those people out of the To save them. Yeah. So, and, and more important. Maybe maybe the same, maybe the same level Good of point. importance. I think it depends who you are, right? which person you are. Yeah. The people inside. No, well, I yeah. feel like if I open that door and the stairs are gone, I might feel like those stairs are pretty important for me to get yeah. out. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing, though, about those findings in those tests is that that's not actually what they were looking for, right? Yeah, it was a byproduct of the test. They didn't expect it. That was a byproduct of the test on the ceiling's going to fall down and hurt someone or there's a myriad of different things that they were looking for. And I think that a lot of the industry honed in and focused on some of those things saying, oh my gosh, I, I never actually thought that in this event that the stairs would actually collapse. So mm -hmm. just from a structural integrity perspective for a lot of years, and if you talk to the engineering community at large, they will tell you that from a stair perspective, that the, the engineering evaluation sometimes skipped over that. Yeah. The engineering of the building itself was designed, and then suddenly you put this thing in this corner of the building that completely locks the building up, called a set of stairs. And when you think about how you're going to deal with it, 
how do you deal with it? Well, you beef it up. Yeah. If we make them thicker, heavier, they're going to be better. And actually what some of this is realized is it's kind of the opposite. The more elastic a building is, the better suited it will be to survive these kind of events, whether it is wind sway, you know, earthquake movement. Rubber band stairs. Here we come. Yeah. I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs> Just inflatable. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. All right. So they did this test and they went in saying, we want to learn something from it. And they found out that they learned way more than they thought they were looking for. Right. And my assumption, not having anything to do with that test, is that it set up new criteria that warranted further evaluation. So it moved the needle from an industry standpoint. It did. Everybody saw this and goes, wait a minute. We need to start trying to solve these problems differently because we didn't even possibly realize that they were problems. And that test, if you think about it, that was 11 years ago. And think about how different things are now than when that test took place in 2012. And I know that you were involved in a more recent shake. Test. Yeah. So I want to get into that. Yeah. So just real quick before we do, I mean, to give California credit, they reacted heavily to that earthquake. And they made some changes and it took from 71 to 2012, ultimately, to have this hospital shake. It was a lot of preparation and planning. And then in 1994, Northridge happened. So the planning pre-test from 1971 to 94, then Northridge earthquake occurs. And there's a new set of findings. Well, this happened and this got damaged. And how do we deal with that? So the knowledge base then continued to evolve. And UCSD all the way was working through making the system better, making it bigger and badder, essentially, in regards to its capabilities. More shakier. More (laughs) shakier. That's your words. Yeah, yeah. So from 2012 to 23, just recently, last month, UCSD did a 10-story mass timber shake table test. And the findings were significantly different because those changes were analyzed and developed and integrated into the building. So the technology keeps advancing. The systems became better suited for that movement and new findings occurred like, oh, wow, now there's somewhere else. We're focusing our energy somewhere else. And we realized something else happened. Yeah, You fix one problem and another one shows up. Funny, huh? <laughs> well, of course. I also think it's kind of interesting that the big test they did before 2012 was five stories. And so now they're going to do a new one. They didn't go six stories. Double down. Yeah. They're like, oh, let's, let's, let's go to 10. 10. Well, and, and beyond that, they went mass timber. So they were taking all the things we talked about earlier in the conversation, the economics, the, the waste factor, renewable building products, mm-hmm. and they went a different direction. And they used a lot of what I'll say standard building materials, but they went full mass timber with this thing. And It was actually amazing. I don't think the full data sets have been released yet for sure, but it was publicized pretty well. It had amazing results in what they ran those systems through. I know there's a pretty amazing video. It's actually playing downstairs at the booth, but we're going to put a link to that on the show notes for this episode. For those of you who actually want to see just how much kind of sway and drift we're talking about, it's kind of jarring to see it. And I think to give the code's body some credit, the ASC documents collect what they call commentary where their the codes books don't change right you guys know that so three year cycles maybe and the gap that exists between these renewal processes exists the commentary and i think the industry's done a nice job of collecting all this knowledge looking at drift movement in a building how the facade interacts with the structure itself how things are connected how things are attached how things are systematized And I think you're going to see the new code as it advances and comes out here in the near future. They're going to pick up a lot of these new findings, not just necessarily in the seismic control area, but 
a lot of the other areas that over the course of the past two to three years have been realized by full-scale testing, water infiltration, understanding of what happens when you don't move air inside of a building. Well, I'm kind of curious. So the 2012 test happens and they learn a bunch of stuff that they weren't expecting to learn. Let's pretend, sake of conversation, they're like, we're going to do the shake test because we want to study these five things. And they do it and they realize, well, we've kind of got some direction on those five, but we learned these 10 other things. So when they do this most recent one that was in May of this year, do they go into it like, now we know 15 things. Are they looking to see how they develop what they learned from the test that was 11 years ago? Or is it to find out how things have evolved? Were they testing certain products? Or is it more like, let's set up this test, see what happens and evaluate what happens so that we can figure out what questions we should be asking based on the data we just collected as opposed to, I'm testing something specific. How did I do? It's both. Because I think that the good thing about the research aspect of this is that there's a known factor of the analysis that happened on past experience. So they have data sets to say, well, we know here this is likely going to happen because there's data to prove out from past experience. The new that's integrated into these tests and into these systems across the board, this building, 10 stories, it wasn't what I would say full scale in regards to its footprint. It's a small footprint, so it can sit on the table, but it still had separate rooms and doorways and hallways and tables and chairs and like Mm. a real building would have in it. Just not people. No people. (laughs) And I think that to answer your question, as they advance it, they're looking for both of those aspects. Like how do we advance our technology to understand how this is going to react in the future? And also testing out theories that we already kind of knew the answer and said, you have to shift. Now we have to shift and make the change in the product or how it was attached, how it was integrated into the structure. Yeah, it's one of those things I feel like that just in my mind, it would be we solved this one problem and we fixed it here. Whatever the failure was that we were trying to mitigate was here, but now it's shifted to somewhere else. We have to find how to fix it at that point. I mean, I know the goal is for it not to fail, but I feel like at some point, there's still going to have to be somewhere where it gives or something fails that you don't expect to because you fixed it from failing here and it's shifted just like trying to follow water through a building. Yeah. It, it just kind of moves around. Yeah. This solution created a different yeah. problem that you Didn't weren't anticipating. Yeah, for sure. Or this, this solution yeah. to it. You know, I would also even think that them going to a taller building, looking to see, this is what I don't know on this test. Was there criteria, like measurable criteria where they go, all right, let's take material interaction. How much is an acceptable level of damage? Like to where you look at and go, well, we can fix that as opposed for to, sure. all right, that's a failure point. And then I would imagine that some failure needs to be designed into it. Like we want this to give way because if it doesn't, it actually might rip everything else apart. Like there's some- Yeah, I get what you're saying. Break, break away, something that just says, we don't want this to actually be so rigid or so bulky or so unable to move or flex with the building that it does more damage because of that inability to respond to the testing conditions we just put on this building. Yeah, I mean, I have a perfect example of that. So I think that there were terms utilized over the course of time in the industry like crumple zone. So a crumple zone describes an area of the facade that is designed to essentially be sacrificed. Sure. Like, hey, this thing's going to crumple if it moves in a certain aspect of drift. So with the integration of the metal panel on that test, there was a release mechanism in the expansion joint system that allowed the metal panel to not be subject to that intense drift. So the university and the professors that designed the building, they designed it to meet a certain criteria and drift. 
the amount of data sets and data points that they did collect and have collected on that is going to tell us exactly what the drift was at level 10. But they had a good idea. We had a good idea of what that was going to be. And some of what you're saying is exactly why would we introduce a sacrificial element to the building when we already know that it's going to be damaged? So let's fix it. And they're they're the type of things that existed in this new test. Part of the reason I brought that up is funny you use crumple as an example because they've been doing that in cars. Yeah, car. So if I get in a head-on collision, Correct. There, there's ways that the engine block is going to drop down so that as whatever I just ran into doesn't push the engine up into my lap, but actually can drop down so that I go over the top of it. Right. So there's some of these things that they're designed to fail in such a way that doesn't create bigger problems for you. They're creating recoverable situations. And I would imagine that's part of the technology and the science that's going into it. What do we say? What do we design to fail in a controlled way so it doesn't create other or bigger or just relocate a problem for us? Yeah, and I think it ties back into the longevity thing. If we know this piece is going to crumple and we know that, we know that we can replace that piece. So how do we make sure that replacing that piece is easy enough and doesn't damage the whole thing? We don't have to tear it down. We can just pull that piece off and put it back, whatever. Yeah. So how long do you think it'll take, since this test is brand new, we know that there's a collection of data, Mm -hmm. there's a dissemination of the information, there's distribution. Because the idea is that we take what we learn and put it into play. We say, all right, well, we know these things now, so let's make changes to the code. Let's make changes to our design idea. Let's change the way that we integrate product A into product B. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a time length that it takes for this information to go from collection to implementation. Do you have a feel for what that might look like? Because technically speaking, and we'll get into this in section three, we're surrounded by things that are already happening to accommodate what you anticipated was going to be learned during this test. Yeah. I think you're looking at months of evaluation to make sure that they get good, clean data sets. I think it's important, and especially from the, the research aspect of, I think they want to make sure that they analyze the data, they being the university, to say that we're very comfortable with all that we've collected and how we actually disperse that to the world, essentially, because mm-hmm. being in academia, they're not biased. It's for the world to use and see. So I think sure. that's the great thing about what they're doing and, and what they're utilizing for. It's for all the right reasons. I would say the answer to that question might be, though, that it's shorter than it used to be. That time from yeah. collection implementation, mainly because of technology and because of hopefully stuff they learned in that first test that they kind of started working on and then now they're able to refine and do whatever. So I would assume it's shorter and it will continue to get right. shorter over time as we advance in our production abilities and all those sorts of things. So there's a couple of bullet points we put in here that had to do with specific parts of the building on this shake test. So let's start with one like expansion joint. How does an expansion joint interact with the facade? That's a big picture item. Yeah. I think one of the major aspects was in the corner of the metal panel. Like I said, the metal panel itself, the requirement for that to move and be also structurally sound and do its job and be aesthetically appealing it's difficult to get all that in one system. So the systematic approach of introducing an expansion joint is where the conversation starts to build a system that has has that longevity. So introducing it so it looks good. It also maintains the water integrity that just the metal panel system would have. And it allows the structure to move in an earthquake setting or even in, we talked about settlement, drift, wind sway, those type of things that wear the parts of a building out. And I think that What we've learned over the course of time was utilized in that test. How large does it have to be? What are those movements going to require? 
when does it actually detach from itself and allow the structure to shift and be elastic to survive? The biggest thing that I think is testament of construction materials is utilizing wood. It's a big feat. I think in some cases, there's nervousness to use mass timber in a 10-story building. Regardless, forget earthquake. Now there's proof that not only was it a good choice to use as a construction material, it also has immense survivability. So let's talk about stairs as well, because that's another big ticket item. Yeah. Especially as soon as you start going vertical, Mm. we kind of talked a little bit about how important stairs are, not only from an egress, I need to get out of my building, but from an ingress, I need to get in to help people or have access to the building. Mm -hmm. Fight fires. There's lots of things that the stairs are a pretty important component to a vertical building. So when we talk about stairs, really what we want to talk about is how they connect or integrate to the structural system that we've chosen to build our building out of. Yeah. And I think generally it's division five aspect. And so many times you hear the words delegated design. That basically means that the building gets built and we move forward, approvals happen. And then someone comes back in and puts the stair system in. And I think where the change is occurring is the understanding of how in 2012, scratching your head and went, wow, these were pretty low drift potentials in a five-story shake and the stairs detached. So that led to more analysis to say, what kind of loads are that actually putting back into the structure? So when you stick build a set of stairs inside of the cavity and attach them to the structural slabs or the beams, what load path is that taking when the building does start to move? And that's all being taken into consideration. So these real live tests are collecting that data and actually showing us where and what it ends up to be is the theory of build it tougher, build it stronger, make it more rigid. And what we tested in the UCSD shake table test was detachable landings, allow the landings to actually detach from the stringers and the mid landings and allow the building to do what it needs to do without the restrictions. What that actually did is it took those forces and it didn't push them directly back into the structure. But those type of conversations have to occur in the beginning of the process to understand how they're going to be attached, what they're going to be attached to. We don't want those stairs to become the crumpets. No. Well, we talked a little bit about that actually last night off air and had to do with when people get involved and who are those people and who has that responsibility and I don't know if there is an answer because the answer to that question is going to depend on who you're talking to. Right. If it's an integrated project delivery method, that's one group of people. If it's a traditional owner, developer, hires an architect, and then you bring in a contractor at DD level to do some preliminary pricing to determine if we're on the right path and do what we need to do, and they can start helping questions and giving us feedback on who their preferred vendors are, the systems they like to use, like they start informing how we go about solving our problems versus if you skip that path altogether and you just go straight to traditional traditional design bid build process. That's a really hard one to put on a plate and dissect unless you do it for every single delivery model. So we can get into it because it was kind of a fun conversation. But I think that the integration of the early engagement piece So we talked about roofs a little bit, and we can relate that to how stairs integrate with a building. If you look at how, say, for example, a roofing membrane interacts with water that hits the roof, I don't want to say never, but I'm going to say never. It never leaks like in the middle of the roof. Where does it leak? It leaks where there's some kind of trade or scope transition at the parapet wall or where there's a joint or something of that occurrence. 
penetration seals, changing direction. So I think the industry is starting to look at that aspect in a systematic way. So systems, not necessarily product. Mm-hmm. Where is there a break in the building envelope that's going to be susceptible to that type of scenario? So I think that early engagement is not necessarily, hey, look at our product and specify it because it's great. It's more about it's solution generated conversations for areas of the structure that actually has the complicated clash. So as the as the industry evolves, collecting those data points is really important. I don't know that I know the answer to that, but if you actually started to think about it and say, okay, the traditional design bid build, yeah, when there's a failure point where we have to go back and there's 100 RFIs, it's like you analyze that and say, where did that go wrong? Why did we have to ask these questions? And if you can repeat that over time, then that's obviously an area of problem. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the early integration really comes into play. It's having the architectural community utilize the partners they have from manufacturing suppliers that can help and assist in having those conversations early on so that these type of things can be dealt with. So you and I actually talked about that this morning over breakfast. And it was the idea that I have a certain amount of workload that's on me. And architects making a decision during the design documentation process, I can just look around this showroom floor and go, how many vendors are here? Say a thousand. And they all have 400 products. I can't possibly keep up with what everybody has and why it's better to use in this situation than that situation. So... It has to do really with how can we leverage our partners within the industry as a service provider to help solve problems that I don't solve every day and that they do. I can say, I'll talk to you because this is all you do. So you should be better at it than I am. So why wouldn't I want to lean on you to say, what's the best way for me to solve that problem? Right. Yeah, for sure. Or a problem that you didn't know even existed just because it's like an impossible mission for you to be a professional and an expert at. 1500 products at the same time simultaneously and that's what all goes into the building it's not like we're making them anymore out of four things right there's a lot of products you know more and actually i'm thinking about this you can actually tell me what the problems are before i even start and say here's the problems that you're going to have to deal with regardless of maybe if you don't know the answers but you know the problems and i think that's also an important thing to, to kind of look at well, we do get to have those conversations when contractors get brought on early and they say, this is the things that we've had problems with recently. Because like we discussed this morning, if I solve a problem in a traditional way or I do one, two, three, clearly it hasn't failed on me. I might say, I'm just going to do this until I learn that there's a better way to do it because I've got 18,000 other problems I need to figure out how to solve. So I don't want to resolve a problem that's not a problem for me yet. Yeah. Even though there might be a better way to do it. Sometimes it's a matter of knowing what you don't know. So you can go out and identify what kind of partners can help you solve certain problems. We also mentioned we don't keep product data on our shelves because it goes out of date. and You use something, find out it's not available anymore. Yeah. So you wait until you need something, then you go looking for it, which is, I don't know about you, Andrew, but that's kind of the way that we operate now. Yeah, sure. I'm not constantly on this throwing the biggest net I can into the architectural products ocean and seeing what I drag back in. I normally go, I have this project. Here's the thing that I need to figure out how to do. And then I start trying to puzzle that and solve it and go, who does that? Who can help me solve that question? If I don't think that I have a problem or I don't have something that's currently in a state of failure on my work, right. I don't reinvent that wheel. Yeah, That's one of the challenges that this industry has to face from the upfront side. 
And that has to do with, we have in the notes here, key partners. Like, who are they and how do you identify right. them? And a lot of times, the first step is, I need to know that I need them in the first place. Yeah. And I think if you start to triangulate the need for what is going to make a building last longer, like you had said, the bones versus the ancillary aesthetic appeal of a structure, and then you start to boil that down. And as time goes on, I think technology is allowing us to look at that in a much broader state with modeling. We're able to model airflow. We're able to model how does the fourth floor stair connection actually connect to the the structural slab? And what does that look like? And what clashes exist with the ductwork? And the technology piece is actually allowing us to look at those things and hone in on what's the need for a partner industry and Mm -hmm. why would I go there first? And it's starting to happen. The front end of this, it's getting scrunched together in a good way. Because no one wants to work on designing a building for nine months and then find out after nine months when the, the ward finally happens that, oh, we're now over budget. So we have to go back in time and redo this or cut something out or sacrifice something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that never happened. Uh, <laughs> I heard about it once or twice. But Come on. Especially yeah. now, that's not happening. No. Everybody's hitting budgets like right on. Well, we also had the conversation about if I'm over budget, how do I go about picking what thing to help solve that problem? Right. And so a lot of times there's people that says, well, this can help you from any myriad of ways. And it's something that I want to talk about later, so I don't want to get into it okay. now. I'm trying to figure the best way to ask this question. When I did a lot more single family residential projects, there was one line of windows that we used all the time. And we loved them. And you know why we used them all the time? For two reasons. We never had problems with them. The rep that was our rep, that helped us solve problems, that was there to answer questions, he was awesome. He knew all his stuff. So we didn't see that as a problem that we needed to solve. Meanwhile, around us, other products might be developed. And how does the guy at window provider B get in front of me when I'm like, I don't have time for that because I've already got something that works and I like this guy. So you tend to, a lot of times, lean on products and people helping you solve these problems based on who you know, what you need, how well they perform for you, how available are they, when are they willing to jump in? Because sometimes what we're asking people to do, it's a lot of work. It is. And a lot of times there's no guarantee that you're going to be rewarded for your efforts to help me solve that problem up front when the project gets cut loose later. Andrew had to deal with that all the time with the work that he did. So just for the benefit of people that don't sit in on all our breakfast conversations, yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, the thing about public projects, at least where I work in doing any sort of public project, we couldn't have a closed spec. We couldn't say this product is exactly what you're going to use. So even when we come in on the front end and we work with a a vendor to say, all right, we're going to build a project around your product. Once it goes out to bid, it's got to be open to everybody. And we have to allow all kinds of substitutions. And, you know, we can't really limit what's happening because it's a publicly funded project. And so dealing with that. I typically found like I would want to do that, but then I would also start to feel guilty if you and I gave it work on something for six months to get it to happen and it goes out and the contractor goes, well, I got something to do that for half of that price and tell the owner it's just the same. I feel like I've done a disservice to you because we've spent all that time and I feel bad about it. But that's the reality of a lot of the publicly funded work. You can't specify certain things in that closed yeah. manner. It's kind of got to be open for everybody. I think, I don't want to say a way around that, but I think an alternative way to view that is performance-based requirements and specifications. Sure. And I think that's where that relationship piece comes in because performance itself, it is product-related for sure. Mm-hmm. But the initial performance is also based on that 
early interaction to have the conversations to say, as a manufacturer, let me define to you some of the problems you might encounter with this. So developing those performance-based requirements opens up the playing field for not necessarily how low can you go and I need to have three, but yeah. more about what's the goals of the project. What do you actually want to achieve? What kind of airflow do you want to get? What kind of movement does your building actually require? What type of sun path analysis is going to be required to keep the shading aspect out of the structure to control the temperature? Mm -hmm. And and the list goes on and on and on. Well, that goes back to what we started at the very beginning of this session. And that was depending on which person in the chain you talk to, you're going to get a different answer on what those priorities could possibly be. I know... Architects have one set of lists, but most owners are like, this is anecdotal. So when I got out of school, I worked for a company. We did a lot of retail work. And it was just me and during this time, it was me and one other guy. And we were doing stores that got rolled out into malls. And there was the CEO of the company. And he told us that if he could sell the product that he was selling out of the back of a white semi pickup truck in the parking lot that's what he would do but he's like i can't because no one's going to pay what we're charging and buy it out of the back of a truck they're going to assign a perceived value to the product based on the environment from which they collect it so they all have different goals so if he could spend less money to do what he needed to do 100 percent, he would but he had gotten to the point that says for what we do we have to build an environment that's at least at this level of development or no one's going to sign the value for our product. But if we went too far beyond, he's going to, whoa, you got to pull that back. Yeah, reel that back in. Yeah, we can't do that. That's too much money. Yeah. Like that's more money than we need to do. Would it have made it better? Yeah. Would it have made a nicer shopping experience? Probably. There's lots of upsides. But he goes, it's all about, does it move the needle from what their objective as a company is, which is to make money right. and be profitable. It yeah. boils down to risk and schedule. I was going to say, and the flip side of that, in the public, especially the school work that I did, it was all about, we got to maximize square footage. Yeah. That's what we're trying to do because we got all these kids and we got to stick them somewhere. We want as much square footage as we can. And then, and then also, we get into things like equipment and when they start talking about maintenance because that was another big issue. They wanted to deal with things, a lot of them, because our guy knows how to work on this equipment. We're like, yeah, but this equipment is going to be better and save you energy and do all these things. Like, uh, No. We've got somebody that's doing that. Our maintenance guy knows how to deal with these things and this and this. And even though it was going to be a better product and it wasn't necessarily about money, but it was about maintenance. Of course, there's upfront costs involved with that, but it was more about that maintaining it for the next 30 or 50 years, which is what they were planning for these schools, is about how their maintenance program fit in with this. And that was down to even finishes and everything else. Oh, yeah. We don't want carpet because we got to do and that got to get replaced. And I mean, it's so it's a, the owners, I think, have a heavy hand depending upon what the project type is about what decisions get made. No, I like that because it takes the singular product view out of the mix because, yes, that is a portion of it. Like, yeah, a manufacturer is selling something, they need to make a profit. But when you look at the different options, like you're describing out of the pickup truck or the relationship that that representative had that was pretty appealing, saying, you know, he's just solved my problem. So, I think if you collection of all that, and it's it's about like I said with the risk and schedule of the project that goes back to essentially the owner. How can I reduce my risk? Yeah, and beat my schedule to get in that building and have it do what it needs to do as quickly as possible. But I think taking a, a broader view of how those products interact with all those things dives into the modularity side of where the industry is going. How do we control the build of things in a in a manner that is offsite 
reduction of people, increased speed, sure, better quality. Definitely. And when you start to interact with all those things, it takes the product out of you trying to solve a problem, not necessarily specify a product specifically. Well, we had three things that fell into that, right? We had material waste, yep. we had time waste, mm-hmm. and we had design waste. And so what all those have to do a lot of times with the time of the process. So if I look at just time as a generic, that could be from the builder standpoint. If I'm able to build something offsite and bring it in, I could be running things concurrently. I have tighter control of systems. I have a tighter control of tolerances. It shows up inside a plug and play. Yep. So it cuts down how long do I have to have my superintendents on site? Like everything gets shorter. And we all know that the longer a project takes to build, the more expensive it tends to be. Or things have gone terribly wrong. Yeah. And, and things will get expensive later, right? Exactly. So we know that that modularity, offsite construction, that contributes to a reduction in time. For sure. Right, which means we're not wasting time. But it also allows, from a design standpoint, you to hone in on a set of problems and continually refine them in, a, in such a way that I don't have to start, like, there's an evolution to it, right? It's, I feel weird for saying it, but it, it's kind of like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Modularity and offsite construction speaks to it as a tie, like a product mm-hmm. that is constantly being updated and evolved because it's not just something that's being done for me and my project. It's a product or a process that anybody who's doing that building type can take advantage of. So my project is benefiting from all the other projects that have been going down this path already and will continue to benefit when we end up having a project in two years because you've been doing projects continuously. And so the design process is being expedited and improved constantly. Yes, they're learning through each project, even though it's not mine, they're learning new things and learning new things, fixing it and modifying that product to become better and better and better. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Well, also, the last one that was on the list is we have material waste. Yep. So the idea that I don't have scraps, I don't have guys like losing track of stuff. We all know that items that are built in a controlled factory environment, their tolerances, they're a lot better, you know, a little lot tighter. They Tighter. They figure it out on machines and they hit buttons and, and equipment start robots come out of closets and (laughs) start putting stuff together yeah but we know that that's true we know that there's an efficiency towards how things that fall into that process of off-site modular construction truth is is really anything that's built off a job site probably benefits from a benefit of material waste a reduction of material waste a benefit of time a benefit of design evolution yeah we know that to be true can i give you an example no okay thank you no examples in this. Go for it. What do you got? Yeah, but if you look it. at modular stair systems, for example, and you look at the cost benefit of that, it goes so far beyond just steel to steel analysis on the bid process. Sure. It's elimination of temporary stairs scaffolding. It's instant access to. That's a lot of lumber ladders you're getting rid of on a yeah. job site. And, yeah. and when you start to actually do the cost benefit analysis on those type of examples, it's actually astronomical when you start totaling up the ancillary costs that exist with trying to, if you think about it, access level three. How? Okay, well, there's no stairs. When you introduce the idea of modularity where these systems actually set the benchmark for the elevations of structure, there's instant access like that day. There's no need for these temporary systems. There's ability to get permitting quicker. There's ability for someone to access the building quicker. 
And mm. that technology safety. It's safer. Yeah. Yeah. And that technology, it's it's broad based in regards to that continued aspect of where can we utilize the same type of methodology across the entire building and the structure and the design process to reduce all those three aspects that you just talked about. So let's jump into the the second to last chunk of our conversation. Yeah. And part has to do with like, what is the future of extending that longevity in our buildings look like? So that can be an evaluation from a materials and a product standpoint, from service standpoint. Even when we started that process talking about the idea of the stairs, construction specialties has one of these types of stairs. I was not aware of it until we started to work together. And all of a sudden I found out that this is a consideration. This is something that was not even on my radar. Maybe that's a shortcoming on my part, which I'm more than happy to concede that. But that's something I'd like to spend a minute talking about. What do you think the future of materials and products look like as they contribute to the longevity and creating better built buildings? Well, I think, first of all, it's not a shortcoming on your part. Oh, come on. <laughs> I know you wanted me to, to torch him, Andrew. I know. He, yeah, come he on. always wants me to get thrown under the bus. But it really is a prime example of what you said earlier. How does an architect become an expert at thousands of different products? But back to the question of what's the future look like, I think it's an establishment of goals at the early phases of the construction process right from the owner or developer and say, what do you want to actually achieve? It goes back to the beginning to say, how long does a building last before we actually say that that's sufficient to be considered longevity of a structure? And I think establishing those goals, the owner could say, I'm going to flip this thing in five years. I could care less. That's not necessarily a steward to the answer to... It's not the best answer for this. To yeah, the industry, sure. but it could be the answer. Yeah. And I think at that stage, then the goal shift needs to be, okay, perfect. You don't care after 60 months, but what does this building need to achieve and the parts and components that are attached to it need to achieve over the time? And I think in general, most owners are, they're not going to not have that conversation. And I think establishment of those goals of what do you want to achieve? How long do you want this to last and why? It's, I want it to last a hundred years. Why? And having that conversation, understand that. And then secondly, is we talked about these partners, specific trade partners, I think that is the big bucket theory. And the big bucket is essentially what aspects of the building are super important to be in a survival mode, such as the structural integrity of the steel Mm -hmm. or the wood, the mass timber. And then what parts actually at the end of the day are an aesthetic attachment to that building where we can change it out. As a matter of fact, we plan on changing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and then you start to bucket that and identify what the goals of the systems are. You find out what these gaps are. You engage those people at an early time frame and start to say, "Hey, tell me about the problems that occurred with these interactions of these two construction materials. How do the stairs interact? How does the facade interact with the edge of slab? How do I deal with that? Great details of all the lineal shapes that are on the building, but when these two things that really are not connected to each other in a catalog or on a website, how does that happen?" I think it's interesting if you think about it from that standpoint of the process and looking at those different components and how they can come together from parts, but also drawing that line in there somewhere of the 1,500 products we talked about today that I have to know about. There's a line in there somewhere that starts to the the left hand, they do make the building last longer. The right hand, we do know they're going to go. That's right. Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm not trying to get a hundred year floor, right? Like I mean, the flooring that doesn't do it for me. That's not going to make it. That's right. Like, so I think you saying like having that conversation, the beginning to talk about where are we drawing that line through our components of the whole building 
starts to establish that baseline of what we're shooting for. And yeah. Where we weave that through ends up giving us that baseline to work with. I mean, if you take a school, what are most school walls built on? Painted CMU. CMU, yeah. But as time goes on, the evolution of what it's like, the life of a student in a school, now the walls are not painted CMU. Yeah. There's something that has purpose, has a meaning, but the intention actually is that they're going to get changed out. Yeah. That's going to wear out. That color is not going to be, yeah. you know, that picture is not going to have relevance. So we know that's going to change. Yeah. Or we come up with an assembly that we know we can pull the face off right. of and we're not having to tear down the wall, but we can pull the face off and replace it easily in a non-destructive way and put something up new, or even if it's the exact same thing, but it's not as worn. It's something like that, that those assemblies and systems that were really trying to take care of increased longevity. Yeah. Well, what I wanted to jump in when we're talking about these priorities, there's the aesthetics, the things that we design into the building that's going to allow us to cosmetically change the things so that it reflects mm-hmm. the time we're in right now. And it doesn't look like it was built 60 years ago. That's right. But it's really how you set the priorities. And this is, I think, based on where you're at or we talk about the bones, and this goes all the way back to the beginning, and it was the climate, wind, sway, settlement, seismic, and elements, like which is water, sun, heat. If I'm in one part of the country, I'm going to have a bit different order of those five things. Mm-hmm. That's right. When we talked about it this morning, it was like, like if I'm here in San Francisco, seismic is going to be on my radar. If I'm in Omaha, Nebraska, it's going to be further down on my list. It's not going to be the thing that's going to drive my decision-making process to the same level of enthusiasm, let's say. If I'm in Phoenix, I'm going to be thinking about sun and heat and expansion. Exactly. All those things are going to weigh into this heavily. I think that's part of when you start to set your priorities, there's this one bucket that has like the aesthetics and the things that are designed to become or be replaced. Mm -hmm. But then you've got five other buckets over here, which are all the things that determine like the bones and the structure of the building, which is those things I just rattled off. Yeah. And I think to give credit to the design community and the ownership relations that exist, I'm going to venture to say the answer to these questions already exist. The key to actually doing something with it is telling somebody about it. So I think you're a hundred percent right. It's in the Bay area. Seismic is going to be at the top of the list, not going to happen in Omaha, but how we deal with these known factors. That's like we said, when I went through the list of five, I don't think anyone listening went, oh my God, I never thought of water. <laughs> right. Yeah. They've always existed. Those are the five. Those five have been there forever. Yeah, it's, it's actually how you deal with them today with all the things we know with how products interact with each other that is the key to advancing our industry. You know, I'm a little concerned that I'm going to find out that like Omaha, Nebraska is a, a seismic hot zone. Seismic zone? There's, yeah. So yeah. We, should, we should have pulled that map It's up. not as seismically concerning as San Francisco, so you're good. Yeah. Yeah. It's all scale, right? Uh, made me think automatically right up in my neck of the woods. I don't even know if it's that bad in Dallas, but where I'm at, it's the sun, and the very next thing is soil movement. Right. Where I live, it's mushy, terrible clay that expands and contracts seasonally inches and inches. Yeah, and I think it sounds super complicated when you start to think of all the products available, but if, if you really boil it down to those things... And then yeah. you start to say, from there, I prioritize. Now I'm going to get into the interior of the building. Just use a school for an example. What are my hallways going to look like? What are my classrooms going to look like? You can actually, I think, get a big picture bucket of all of that rather quickly. And again, I actually think the answers already exist. Someone has already sat through and had these conversations. 
I think the goal is taking these trade partners and sharing that information with them so that they can feed back critical problems that they've known about in the industry, like you described. All right. We're two minutes from the most anticipated <laughs> part of all these shows, but I, I wanted to take a minute and give everybody a chance if they wanted to have any kind of conclusionary comments about the idea of a better built building. I can certainly go first. What I wrote down might be something that we want to elaborate on or give you something to build upon. And really it has to do from my standpoint is I take all the time, Gabe and Andrew, that we've talked about in preparation for this episode, all the offline meetings that we've chatted about this and all the months. And yeah, all the stuff we didn't put in the show, right. right? Just to figure out how can we tell a story that has a starting and a middle and an ending and it makes sense. The takeaway that I had from this whole experience was that achieving a better built building, a more resilient structure is not accidental. That process is not accidental. It has to be an objective from the beginning. Of all the things that I'm walking away with, I go, oh, you need to start thinking about these things in a different way. Because like I said, I've always thought about air, sun, and infiltration and expansion. I, these are things that I think about all the time. But now I'm thinking about it a little bit different because I have to set an objective for what kind of goals do I want to set for my building on how, as a steward of the earth, right. how long do I want it to last? How do I want to survive these events that occur from time to time? And I don't have to tear my building down and throw it into a landfill. Yeah. So I think what I drew out of this the most, if you could say how I agree, it's not accidental, but I think the thing that really pulled my head into how does this happen and how do we deal with this as we forward is it's actually asking the question of what went wrong last time. Hmm. I don't think you can Google that. I don't even know where to find it. I don't know the answer, but if you actually started to analyze that and research it and say, okay, you guys designed a building, went through the process, hired the contractors, the subs, and all the people that made this thing work, what went wrong in that process and started to collect that data and say, well, we had a huge hiccup here because this leaked and the schedule got pushed and the list is a, a thousand deep and started to collect that and analyze that data. I think that's going to help us also dial in those five areas. I'm hoping that I don't have thousands deep problems on my projects <laughs> that I no, have to I solve. No, I mean, across the, like if you said, let's ask yeah. this question across the country, that's going to be a lot. But I, if you start to look at it and say, okay, what are the top five? Well, it's the idea that you're going to do a project and we should all be thinking, not necessarily what went horribly wrong that I need to fix because that should happen. I hope that happens. But it's really, what can I do better? What can I improve upon? Yeah. This did what I wanted to do, but I wish it could have been better. Or I think it could have been better. Or this impacted my project in this way. And I think if I'd just done this slightly different, I could improve upon this. I think that's a very reasonable position that anybody could take when they start the process of how do I build longer lasting buildings? Yeah, I think that's true. I think I would argue that sometimes we as architects and designers don't have that kind of time. Right. Like to sit back in retrospect and look at, oh, what did we do on this project? We're already waist deep in the next project by the time that happens. I do think that there's something interesting to be able to think about actually looking at those things that came up. And that gives me the opportunity to go say, who should I talk to about this? I did the same old same that I've always done and we came with a problem or a problem that keeps happening. Who should I go seek out that's not an architect, but that's somebody out there in the industry that can help me address this problem? I think that kind of retrospective thing starts to make sense because I think sometimes as architects, we can figure it out. I can research it enough and do enough of this and I can piece it together and figure it out. It'll be fine. And I don't need to pull in an expert because I can make it happen. Yeah. I think for me, though, 
the interesting part about is how the industry is changing. And it's the more that all of our components get integrated together, but the more that they have to work together and separately at the same time right. in order to make the building last longer. Because that's really where it's at is being able to disassemble things without having to disassemble the whole building or fix it and make it last longer without overall destructive chaos that we kind of do now. To me, the technology is pushing us to be able to do that better and things become more integrated, but we also become sort of more individualized, even though they're some system. And I think that's when it comes to the point of having all of these different people in the room or on the call because they've all got their own parts, but they're on different catalogs from different people. And we've got to get them to work that's together right. because I think that's the thing. That's the trick is there are all these components, but we've got to get them pulled together. I thought that was a nice way to wrap up that conversation. For sure. Andrew was very eloquent in his points. So this is the part of the show that really, it runs hot and cold. Either people fanatically love it or at worst, they're indifferent to it. <laughs> and so everyone knows who listens to the show. They know that this is the time when we do a hypothetical question or a what's the rank question or we do a this and that question. So we let Gabe who's our guest, who's going to participate today. We let him choose which one he wanted to do. And so we chose to do a what's the rank question. And since I get a lot of grief about changing the rules to suit my <laughs> answers, I'm actually going to go first. Gabe, we're going to make you go last because we're still going to make fun of whatever answers you give. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's how it works. All right. You, you ready to do yeah. this? Okay. So what we're going to rank today is what are the worst three candy bars of course there's rules to this there's always rules because the game is find the loophole that's always seems to be the game because there's too many weird and seasonal candies that are out there we're going to say that the parameters for answering this question has to be a candy bar that i can walk into any generic corner convenience store or a grocery store and buy at any time of the year so no seasonal products no short run specialty we changed all the colors from this to that for this time. None of that. Okay. And not some kind of weird Pennsylvania. This is the only place in the country you can get a candy. This is tough. Mass market this stuff. Is, if you guys know me, there there is no bad candy. Yeah. No bad candy. But you know what? There's degrees of greatness, right? <laughs> so we need to know the three least great. Okay. Right? To me, it's either there are bad candy bars. Granted, I don't eat a lot of candy, but there are bad candy bars. Yeah, I don't eat candy bars either, but I feel more than qualified to have an opinion about it. I'm confident in my answers today. Yeah, yeah. No. All right, we're going to bring it. All right, so you ready to do this, yeah, game? let's go. All right, you're first. What's your number three? No, you're first. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm part. Oh, See, he's already breaking up. his own rules. I was always going to break the yeah. rule. The rule is no seasonal. It has got to be pretty much a mass-produced. Wildly available. Candy bar. Yes. Gotcha. All right. Gotcha. Okay. All right, I'm, I'm ready to do this. All right. So my number three candy bar is a Butterfinger. That is a desperation <laughs> candy bar. I'm 100% positive that somebody has choked on that flaky dust. I don't know. That orange, crumbly, cracker garbage. I'm not going to lie to you. I like Butterfingers. Like, of course you oh, do. Of course, of you, course do. you do. You're probably going to like all of my bottom three. Other than the fact that you like all candy bars. You want to come at me for that one? I'm looking at you dead in the Have eye. Have you ever eaten one? Or are you just judging it? No, no, no. I've, I've eaten all of these. Oh, it's... At some point in my Butter life. Butterfingers are good. Garbage. But they're not the most garbage. Do you like Werther's Originals candies? I do. Actually, I do like it. That's not a candy bar, though. It's not, but it's uh, butterscotch. 
Yeah, but Butterfinger's not that. No, Butterfinger's peanut butter. I'm going to chime in here because it's my third choice. Oh, see? Butterfinger's garbage. Because my God. I read a description of the day, and it said peanut butter wrapped over a stringy taffy. And I was like, taffy? What? It's not taffy, but that's apparently it's some kind of dried taffy core. Whatever that orange stuff is, is no good. See? Out. It is no good. Just because you wrap it in chocolate? Nope. It's still bad. I'm going to say at a different temperature, that's like fiberglass. That's what I think. <laughs> yeah, right. All right. No, it's not good. Like, if you put it in a pan and turned on the heat, the chocolate would melt and nothing would happen to that core, whatever that is. Yeah. All right. All right. Number three. So we're teaming up on you right out of the gate. I, I got it. So I would say my third is the they're chunky. Oh, yeah. I'm familiar with the chunky. They have raisins in them. What? What? I think do they, they have raisins in them. No, they don't. I think they do. Because if they did, they would be my bottom candy bar. Oh, there's no chance. Yeah, but they're, no. they're just terrible. Huh. Well, if they had raisins, for sure. Yeah, if it's a raisin, it's definitely a terrible candy bar. I'm feeling like, let's put a dollar on this. There's no raisins in a chunk. Okay. Raisins don't belong in a candy bar, period. Just like, to be on. clear, I didn't research this. I'm winging it, but chunkies are terrible. All right. All right. All right. That's fair. I'll, I'll give it to you. All right. So that was a terrible answer. Number one right out of the <laughs> Thanks. gate. Okay. All right. My number two. You ready for this one? Yeah, yeah. Baby Ruth. I know why. And I'll bet most people don't even know what's in a Baby Ruth. And you've already set the bar because you chose Chunky and thought there were raisins in it. So here's the ingredients of a Baby Ruth. You got chocolate, caramel, peanuts, and I don't know, epoxy. (laughs) (laughs) The main problem is that it looks like feces. Uh, And, you know, and it was used in Caddyshack as the floater in the pool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And what's funny about it, and and you might be looking at it going, hey, all the ingredients in a Baby Ruth are the same ingredients in a Snickers bar. And most people think Snicker bars are pretty good. Yeah. I don't like nuts in my candy bars, so I'm kind of out on that anyway. Yeah. They have the same ingredients, but the Snickers bar is actually not as old as Baby Ruth came out first. They're Mm -hmm. the OG of whatever those four ingredients are. Oh. The baby ruth. So I, I don't mean to interrupt it. So what kind of dollar were we putting on this chunky? Uh oh. A dollar. A one dollar. Yeah, one dollar. So I looked it up. And originally chunkies did have raisins. Not originally. I go buy one today. Let's do it. Later we're buying one. They roasted peanuts and plump California raisins. There's no oh. way. Oh my God. Well, I'm I'm it's gonna terrible. accept my dollar with pride. I will give you that dollar. That's yeah. actually true. That sounds terrible. See, that's just I don't know. I didn't even know that was a thing. That's bad. Yeah. Uh, I just moved it to my number one spot. Candy and fruit don't go together. (laughs) Let's redo this whole ranking. All right. So, Baby Ruth, no child should put that in their mouth. (laughs) I'm sorry. No. Okay. Okay, So, then I'm going to go. I was torn here. There was a couple that could fit this spot. But I think I'm going to end up with Payday as the second worst one. Again, because I don't like peanuts. But I don't know what the center of a Payday bar is. Also fiberglass. <laughs> uh, it's like it's like sweet me. string cheese or something. Cheese, but it looks like that. Like it's like this white like kind of thing, and they just roll yeah. peanuts on it, and it's but it's not chocolate. I don't know what it is. It's not even marshmallow. You got to keep in mind that we saw him eating trail mix, so clearly chocolate, raisins, and nuts is in your wheelhouse. Yeah, but I can't do a payday. It just doesn't. Again, even when you pull it apart, it kind of does a string cheesy thing. I mean, like no, yeah, I, it's, I'm not for it. Well, clearly we're anti-peanut guys. Oh, for sure. I'm not for it. Yeah. I like payday. Uh-huh. All right, so you want my second? Yeah, sure. I think we're going to fight later, just so you know. We are. I'm definitely going to find a chunky. <laughs> okay, what's your number two? Milky Way. Okay. Meh. You know what? I actually like Milky Ways. Look, can I just put this out there? Fun size. 
okay, full size. Nobody has any business eating a full size Milky Way. <laughs> They're worse. I don't know how it is. A little baby Milky Way? I think the data's proven it out. The difference between a Milky Way and a Snickers bar is only the peanuts, pretty much, right? No. Like, isn't that the difference? No, cannot be. I think it's pretty close. I like Snickers. I think it's pretty close to that. I don't know. You want to double down? I, I do. <laughs> double or nothing. We're looking up the ingredients. The thing I don't like about, to me, there's too much of the, the caramel layer. I don't like caramel anyway. I think it was a mistake. They made a mistake <laughs> in the process of development. I don't know. I'm okay with that answer. Of all the candy bars that are out there, I actually will eat them. Only the fun size, though. Okay. And if it comes out of the freezer. <laughs> okay, number one. This is, I'm telling this you. This is easy for me. It's pretty easy for really? me, too. Okay, so for me, this is a three musketeer. Oh. Uh, and I'll tell you what, it, one, it is a trash candy bar. <laughs> No. So all it is, no. no, I'm about to tell you something that's going to change your mind. I'm about to ruin a three musketeer for everybody out there. It's the hot dog of candy bars that you're about to tell me. <laughs> so here it is. It's all nougat with a little wrapper of chocolate around it. Do you know what that nougat is? I do not. Do you know what it is? No, I don't. It's egg. They make it by whipping egg whites into a hot sugar syrup. That sounds pretty good. Egg white. Sounds healthy. <laughs> That sounds great. Yeah. Egg whites. You're eating egg. Chocolate-covered eggs. It sounds like Easter. Pass. No, I think it sounds okay. You didn't change my mind. Yeah. Mm. No, no, no. You're both broken. Had it been some other kind of thing they were whipping up into nougat? Maybe, but... So if I go get an over-hard egg and cut out the yolk and dip that in chocolate, you're in. No, because it's not whipped up and smooth and, like, silky. So if I scramble... If I scramble... Scramble the eggs scramble and white egg whites and chocolate. There you go. That's... Maybe. No, but they put the corn syrup in it, too, though. You got to scramble the eggs with, like, high fructose sugar corn syrup. I don't like my candy bars with egg. I'm out. No you eggs, no raisins, no peanuts. Yeah, no eggs, You're raisins, no peanuts. Paydays, yeah. Milky Way, I mean, they're on my top. I like a Three Musketeers bar. Little ones, I'll eat them. I wouldn't eat a whole candy bar. Anyway. The king size? Yeah, nobody wants Do you that. notice that there's a fun size, and then there's king size? Is there a regular? I don't know if they make regulars, but for me, it's going to be the... It's the mound slash almond joy. I guess I'm going to go almond joy because... You mean almond sadness? Yeah, yeah I know. There's right? no joy. It's, it's like a coconut log that they cover in chocolate, and then they, they pop one little almond on the top. Yeah. First off, strategically, how am I supposed to eat that? I can't bite that in half, so I'm getting one bite with an almond and one without. They don't put two almonds on there for you to have two bites of it. But I don't want coconut. I don't like any kind of coconut, and there's something inside that coconut. It's creamy. It's some kind of nougaty. It's the stuff they took out of the payday. And they put it in the, and then wrapped in coconut instead of peanuts. Yes. And no, the Almond Joy coconut, I just can't do. I don't want coconut at all. All right. I, you're probably going to get a bunch of supporters of that answer, by the way. Possibly. All right. So where are we at? Well, you're giving us your number one this worst. This is your number one. Your worst. Yes. My number one worst is Special Dark. I don't even know what that is. I don't know is. what that is. Like the Hershey Special Dark? Is it just like a chocolate bar, but it's the Special yeah. Dark? Chocolate? It's ter- they're terrible. Why? Yeah. You know, because they didn't put sugar in it. Is that you can't is? even mash a marshmallow around it. But I love dark chocolate. Like that 83% stuff, I'll eat it all day. Special dark. Terrible. Fair enough. I toyed around with having score. I don't know if they make those anymore. I like those. S-K-O-R's. I actually yeah. like those. Those are terrible too. No, it's like scores are the better version of Heath bars. No, they're yeah. both like garbage them. in the center. I like toffee. So No, I don't like toffee. Okay, look. I think we've reached a point where I'm going to call that a wrap. Thank you for being with us today for episode 129, Built to Last. Gabe, thanks for being our special guest on the show today. We appreciate the time and effort you put into hanging out with us for the last big chunk of time. 
Yeah. Yeah. We appreciate it. It was awesome. We appreciate you guys having me. Yeah. And a big thank you to everyone who joined us live on the AIA 2023 San Francisco Expo floor for this live recording. We also want to thank our sponsors, Construction Specialties, for their support of today's episode, as well as our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. Want to get every new episode automatically downloaded? Be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on all major podcast platforms so you can get alerted every two weeks when we publish a totally awesome new episode. While you're there, please take a few more seconds and leave us a five-star HSW Learning Unit rating. To get even more content, head over to lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, and info about this super cool episode and all the website has to offer. You can even add your own voice and join the conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers.